the data is important, but students are not just numbers on a data sheet, right? We say it all the time, but sometimes it gets lost in practice. The most important thing is relationships because making such a change is hard. Again, we're talking about changes and shifts in mindset, shifts in like historic policies of a division. That can seem to be overwhelming and that could seem like a lot. It involves lots of trust and be able to have really tough conversations. Education Uncharted is a show from Propello, a K-12 teaching and learning platform that helps districts and teachers give every student a first-class learning experience. I'm your host, Amanda Bratton, exploring the stories of courageous educators that have broken out of the status quo to chart new paths and boldly innovate in the ever-changing landscape of education. Today, we're joined by Anthony Vargas, a change maker in educational policy and the director of advanced academics, gifted and talented for the Maryland State Department of Education. A 2023 Edweek Leaders to Learn From honoree, Anthony was recognized for his work with the Manassas City Public Schools in redefining their gifted and talented program. So good morning, Anthony. Thank you so much for joining us today. How's your summer going? It is going amazing. There's a lot of life changes, um, but all really, really, really good. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about the new place that you are in now, your new role. What are you doing? Yes. So now I am the director of advanced academics, gifted and talented for the Maryland State Department of Education, which I just started a few weeks ago. So still learning a lot, right? Yes. <laughs> but super exciting. So what is it that you are tasked with doing for the state of Maryland? Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So now I am really helping our school districts with their gifted and talented and advanced programming. So making sure all those things that I was able to do in my previous school division concerning our demographic issues or our identification issues, um, making sure that all students have what they need and they deserve. I'm able to now help people that were in my position and really support them as they tackle on all of these challenges. Awesome. So maybe we can take a little back step. And I would love to hear you share a little bit about your personal journey and what inspired you to become an educator and then to focus in this area of gifted and talented education. Yeah, that is an amazing question. So my personal journey really gets at my passion for this work. So I'm passionate about this work. I like to say that I am my students. What I mean by this is that I grew up in a household well below the poverty line with little access to opportunities and true life experiences. Drug addiction was actually in my household as a young child. I had a full understanding and awareness of what it meant to be living paycheck to paycheck. Because I intimately knew what struggle was at such an early age, I always wanted to help and support children going through their struggles. 
I saw very little people that looked like me, acted like me through my education. And so I wanted to be that voice for these students, providing supports to them to show what is actually possible. My interest in gifted and talented education came later on during my first years of teaching. I noticed that the school I was working at really didn't have a defined gifted and talented program and did lacking resources and support specifically for this group of students. You hear phrases that make you cringe, to be quite honest, similar to the idea of, well, these students don't really need anything or they'll do just fine because they're going to do just fine on the state test. So we don't need to focus on them. And that's inequitable. That to me is inequitable and also quite simply just wrong. Every student not only needs, but deserves an appropriately challenging education. So I started my master's degree in gifted and talented education and agreed to build the program at the middle school that I was working at. I'm a fixer and I realized I loved finding out the inequities and developing solutions to a broken system. So I went on to eventually work for a different school system that was really unfamiliar territory for me as they had so many resources and supports and I realized quickly into that, that I needed to return to a poorer school division where I could help even more because I saw the breakdown and the differences. So it led me to Manassas City, where I originally worked as a gifted and talented resource teacher. I quickly realized then that I can be even more effective in a leadership capacity. So here's the harsh fact. Those teachers who once said, well, these students really don't need anything. Those people become central office and building leaders, right? And so what they've said now can be even more damaging in these situations. And then it leads them to say things like this. We need to put our strongest teachers with our weakest students. By the way, this is, in my opinion, it's well-intentioned. I get the idea behind that, like put the students that need the most support with the most needy, put the teachers with those students. However, in practice, what you see and what really goes on is the needs of our GT students is really lacking and there's no accountability system. There's no true support for these teachers that are placed in that environment. So they end up just putting the weakest, so to speak, teachers in those classrooms without any other additional support or struggle. And so this to me is my passion. This to me is my next mission. My goal is to make sure that all students really do get what they need and they deserve. I think that's so inspiring. And I'm really interested in digging in a little bit more to that point that you made about how it doesn't always make sense to put your strongest teachers with the students who are struggling the most. So what does it look like if I'm an administrator, if I'm a principal and I'm choosing where my teachers should go and which students should go with which teachers, what do you see as a more equitable solution? I wonder if you can just give us a little bit of insight there. Here's the deal. It's hard. And we're charged with a very difficult task because we know 
the ideas of differentiation and we need to differentiate. But everyone also knows this differentiation is very difficult. And so it's extremely difficult. And so we need a master teacher to work through those difficulties. Also, here's a little bit more about the need for this. Our states only set the minimum standard. Many of our gifted and advanced students are above the minimum standard. And those two things to me really drive the need, I think, for making sure that we don't just place weaker teachers with gifted students and say, okay, they're fine because they're going to pass the test. The deal is we're facing in the United States of America a teacher shortage. So I get that we might not have the most rock star teachers everywhere for everyone. But the idea is we still need to make sure we have systems in place that are supporting our weakest teachers. Hey, we want to support our weakest students, right? So what are we doing to actually support our weakest teachers? I'm fine with weaker teachers being in the mix because guess what? They are going to be. But what I'm not fine with is just leaving them there. That to me is the issue. So to me, we have to focus on, which in gifted education, I think is the most important point to focus on anyway, is really sound professional development, really sound professional learning that helps these teachers. We see this change or this desire for more, the improvement of professional development and being able to see long-term how these moments of learning do affect our classrooms and our teachers and how we can build skill over time. I definitely think that we're all on board there. I want to jump back a little bit and talk more specifically about gifted and talented programs. For those of us who have not been educated through a gifted and talented program or don't actively work within a district that offers this. Can you share with us a little bit about how these programs have traditionally been set up and then what it was within those programs that beyond the placement of teachers, what was missing within these programs in terms of serving all populations of students? Absolutely. So the idea of gifted education really comes back to what I love, which is inequities. And so when we see the creation of the education department and we see the creation of these specialized programs and special education is one of them, then we started to realize the need for gifted education as well. There are really all students that are represented in our classrooms. So historically, it really does come from a great place of making sure all students are represented and all students get what they need in their education because what they were finding is this group of advanced students weren't getting what they need in their education. The seventh grade curriculum for a seventh grade student wasn't appropriately challenging enough for that particular student and for that particular kid. And we realized that we need to do better by our students. So that's historically where that comes from. Now, where it sits and the issue area behind a lot of it is in the identification practices because it was so heavily focused on purely intellectualized assessments. So like based really and rooted in a lot of IQ assessments and things that really get at, in my opinion, innate ability so we are looking at innate ability. You are born this 
all-star genius, right? And so you can solve all the world's problems. So let's do it. And again, well-intentioned in my opinion, but that's not getting at all of our students. And so what we now see very clearly in the research very clearly in the work, very clearly in the numbers um, of representation is the highlight of those issues. We see vast underrepresentation of minority groups of students. We see huge underrepresentation of students with disabilities, multilingual learners. But the reality is they have gifts too. We need to grow them. And that to me is the job of us as educators and in the education system is to challenge some of those old schools of thought so that we can be more inclusive for a quite frankly changing world. Absolutely. And I think you definitely hit the nail on the head when you say we are in a changing world and our expectations and the identification practices need to change along with. Absolutely. Yes. You get me. You get what I'm trying to throw out there. (laughs) I love it. So, Anthony, when you recognize that there was a need to do this work, when you really started digging in and seeing we've got to identify things a little bit differently here. Where did you start? What were your first steps? Yeah, because it can be overwhelming, right? (laughs) You want to tackle everything at once. So where I started is at the data. So I started diving deep into the data for that change to happen. You have to really be able to tell the holistic story, in my opinion. And that starts with the data. And when I say data, what I really mean is researching the problem. What do the numbers say with that problem? But also beyond that, how are we tied beyond what the numbers are saying? What are the people saying? It's not just about, hey, we have this amount of students that are being unidentified. What are the students saying? What are the parents saying? What are the school boards saying? How do we all show up to this problem? Because that's how we all can show up to the solution. That to me is huge, showing up to the problem so that we could show up to the solution. But where I really started was figuring out, okay, what do the numbers say? Because that is important. And then let me have conversations with these different stakeholder groups and make sure we create a common understanding around what our data, all of those voices, plus those harsh numbers, what that all means and what that all says is where I really went. I think that we can attack a lot of different problems in that way, right? Absolutely. Yes. It's coming together because what oftentimes I've seen happen is, and again, we're all well-intentioned. Let me say we're all showing up in that aspect, but we can look at another stakeholder group and say, well, this is what you could be doing better, or this is what you could be doing better. This is what you could be doing better, as opposed to what I like to say really is holding up the mirror. When you're able to hold up the mirror and you're able to reflect first and then bring that to the conversation, I've had some incredible conversations, right? Um, Incredible conversations around that have really led to develop change, but it starts there. 
And then you develop some short-term goals, some short-term wins that you all can rally around. You track those goals, you track that progress because you also need a place for celebration. You need a place for, hey, we got this goal, right? We did this thing, we accomplished this. And then that will propel you on to the harder work, which is tackling that next goal. So I think that's key. And it sounds like these are the sorts of things that administrators, just even following that path for whatever change you're trying to make can really help to not only in the end solve the problem, but ensure that there are multiple stakeholders involved and that everybody who feels that they are a part of the problem and the solution are able to really feel committed because they've been heard. Yes, absolutely. When everyone's able to show up, when everyone's able to own it, then the change can happen. I feel like that's really profound. And it sounds like these are the ways of working that have gotten you to the space that you are now, which is an amazing lift, right? You're making amazing lifts. I wonder if we can talk a little bit more about the redefining of giftedness. So I read an article in Newsweek about the work that you're doing. And I wonder if some of these conversations that we're talking about helped you get to this place of recognizing that we need to turn the understanding of giftedness in a little bit of a different direction. So can you tell us a little bit more about how you approached this understanding or this new way of thinking about giftedness? And Again, how were you able to get your key stakeholders on board with this change? Absolutely. So the major initiative that I implemented really around this was changing to a talent development program. So that's what we're really speaking about here is changing it to the idea of talent development. So we see giftedness from a cultivating of growing passions and talent viewpoint. I approach this by working through really teacher learning and teacher development, which I said is the most important piece for me in all this work. And this is why it's also most important in GT specifically, because we say that it's important in professional learning is important to teachers, but here's why it's especially important for gifted education, because most teachers have no formal training at all in working with gifted and advanced learners. However, those students exist and they'll be in everyone's classroom. Dr. Donna Ford, she's a leading researcher, an educator in the field, and she's really highlighted this as a major problem with underserved student representation. She points to and shares that it's really the lack of referrals for these students. And so those lack of referrals get back to teacher not understanding and not really knowing about GT and what it looks like and how it can be grown. So this is a huge mindset shift within the field, a huge mindset shift within the field um, with a whole new level of understanding. But in changing mindsets and shifting from a concept of fixed right or innate ability to this growth of talents, I want everyone to know that I didn't focus on the mindsets. 
I didn't focus on the attitudes. I didn't focus on the thoughts because you're going to go down the rabbit hole with all of that. I focused on the actions and the behaviors that are rooted in best practice, which eventually leads to the change that you ultimately want to see. That's a big thing. Let me break that down a little bit so that people can understand. I'll talk specifically in the context of teacher professional learning too. I'll take you through what I did with that. But I developed a three-pronged change process to ensure success. And so we'll look at it through the context of professional learning. And those three prongs really are, one is policy. So how does it show up in the policy? The second prong is accountability. So what's the accountability structure? And the third and really, really, really important is support. And so those three things are the magic triangle, right? The magic triangle of change success for me, at least. So for policy, I had to look at and revise our current policy, which in Virginia's in the state is in the form of a district GT plan. So I brought over some learning modules. I modified them to fit our division's learning needs. And then I updated the policy to reflect the idea that all teachers teaching gifted and advanced students have to take these learning modules. That they have to take it. It's written in our policy. So that's how it shows up in policy. Accountability. We know that a lot of times, if we don't have the accountability structure, policy stays just on paper and we need to move it to actual action. So what I did is I worked with our school principals to let them know, again, another stakeholder group, to let them know how do they show up to this and it's really in the accountability measure. So I worked with them to be helpful for them to see how does this weave into the work they're already doing? How do these modules weave into the teacher evaluation system that we have set up? And then they care about the modules. And I got these principals into these modules and I made them leaders into the modules. They're owning it. So that's the accountability. And third, and what I will say on this most important is the support piece. And we know that teachers have full plates right now. And so it cannot be just another thing that we're adding on for teachers to do. So we had to show up and say, how are we able to help shuffle around and take a couple of things off teachers' plates so they can do this? So my team, my gifted resource teachers and I, uh, we developed a plan to basically go into their classrooms and teach a lesson to their students while the teacher went away and was able to work on these learning modules so that we gave them time and space to concentrate and work on these learning modules. But what I will tell you is that wasn't the only benefit of that. Now, my gifted resource teachers are able to go into that classroom and get another opportunity to interact and talent scout for those kids. Double, triple whammy, whatever you want to call it, right, um, happened through that process. So for me, I'm about sound processes and procedures. I think that's how we get to where we need to get to. And that I just wanted to take you through what I did as far as professional learning. And I think that, again, it sounds very much to me like this works for gifted and talented, but this could work for 
engagement. This could work in so many different directions to support the development of teachers and the lifting up of students. They all need lifting up in one way or another. So it's just identifying where that happens and then how you put it into practice. Yes. Fantastic. In the same Edweek article that I read, it mentioned that you have been able to push for a broader emphasis on non-objective measures of student performance. And I think you reflected on that a little bit before when you talked about how traditionally the identification process was about innate ability, IQ tests, etc. At Propella, we are super focused on being able to identify success with more holistic indicators. And I'm wondering if you have any advice for schools that might be interested in making that shift from their traditional quantitative measurements to someplace where we can see students being successful holistically and how we can see progress over time through holistic indicators. Absolutely. So again, the data is important, but students are not just numbers on a data sheet. We say it all the time, but sometimes it gets lost in practice. The most important thing is relationships because making such a change is hard. Again, we're talking about changes and shifts in mindset, shifts in like historic policies of a division, right? That can seem to be overwhelming and that could seem like a lot. It involves lots of trust and be able to have really tough conversations. So for me, schools first really need to define what they mean by these terms we're throwing around. Do they have a clear definition that everyone at the table can show up with when we're talking about data, when we're talking about equity, when we say PLC, professional learning community or professional development, make sure you are really super clear on what do these things mean? There are champions already at your school. And listen, you're probably one of them listening to this podcast. There are champions all at the school that are all around. Find your network of people that also believe in the same thing, that also really understand the importance of holistic indicators. If you are only looking at quantitative measures, you have to be the courageous soul out there to say, why is that? And you have to allow it to get a little bit uncomfortable. Amanda, I don't mind being a little bit uncomfortable, right? Because that's where I think we're able to get to the sweet spot of actual change. So true. I think that challenging ourselves every day, that you put yourself out there just a little bit and you get used to putting yourself out there. And it sounds like it's a continual step towards the change that you're looking for. Otherwise, we'll just sit in that status quo really nice and comfy. But somebody else might be sitting in that status quo feeling pretty uncomfortable. And so, yeah, I think it makes a ton of sense. I'm wondering how you maintain that focus on relationships and individuals when it's so easy to just get embedded in the data and the numbers. That data is coming at us from every different direction. So how do you, in that administration space, remind yourself that it's individuals that you're working with? It's hard when you're not sitting with them every day. It's so hard. But what I will say is 
really being intentional about actively listening when you do get that chance to be around those individuals. And I believe I need to hear from all of the stakeholders. So even if there isn't something in my job description that says I need to hear from students, what process and procedure have I set up to consistently and frequently get myself in front of students and hear and listen to them? Because those spaces aren't automatically in admin roles, especially in the roles that I was at. So it took me to put myself in those spaces. How do I create policies, processes, and procedures that gets me in front of the parent groups and gets me able to actively listen to those parent groups, right? And that's where it is just intentionally, you know what? You don't let your calendar get completely full. And that's hard to do sometimes, right? You have this meeting, that meeting, and everywhere in between, but you leave these spaces to connect directly and see the work. Super meaningful tip there. I think we could all use a little bit of that. So I want to close out with just asking you for the advice that you would give to educators, parents, administrators, policymakers who are really interested and focused on promoting diversity and equity in their schools and districts, whether it be through gifted intelligent programs or something else. What do you see as some actionable steps that they can take to make a difference And maybe we can just start with where should they start? Yeah, the first place that you have to start, as I said a little bit earlier, is holding up the mirror. It has to start with self-reflection. And so you have to be able to answer the question, how am I contributing to or allowing for inequities and ignoring some of the issues that are in my district? If you say you aren't, That's the central issue, right? (laughs) To change because the reality is we all are. And it's not by any fault a lot of times of our own, but society has these issues as a part of them. Our school systems have inequities. We are inherently a part of an inequitable system. I am too. I also show up with my own bias because we are born and nurtured in this system. Every stakeholder must take ownership of the problem and find ways directly tied to themselves to take action. Can't go around playing the blame game. So as a parent, if I'm talking to parents right now, you have to ask yourself, how am I directly involved in or with my school system promoting all students? Do I know what equity, diversity, or any of the issues means to the school that my children go to? Do I know that, right, from the school? Do I know what am I connecting with other parents or inviting others to join parent groups? Do I attend the school board meetings and come to listen and not just share my opinion about something that went wrong, but am I there to listen and hear of the progress of what's going right? As an educator, you need to ask from your level of influence, how are you positively promoting the equity, diversity, what have you in your school system. As a teacher, do you reflect on your own biases? Uh, Have examples of honoring a diversity of all people through your classroom. As a leader in our schools or our districts, you have a powerful voice and you're a voice at the table. So you have to critically question past practices because they're in an inequitable system. So are you proactively going out 
also into the community and learning from them. Don't just invite them in, but are you going out? That to me is right now actionable step that we can try to plan on today. As leaders, we can say, well, how am I engaging with their community? As a policymaker, are you being responsive to leaders in the field, ensuring that systems are in place to make sure multiple voices are heard? But ultimately, the best practice research things you're supporting and are going into place because you're caring about our students. Are you willing and able to learn yourself? Once you have a clear understanding of your misconceptions, of your biases, of how you show up, then and only then can we band together and advocate for change. Without this type of reflection and focus, I see people declaring others as being solely responsible for the problem and also the solution. If all stakeholders come together, then we all can directly solve it. We then can save the world. And I truly believe that in all honesty, because saving or changing the world starts with us individually. It starts with each of us. I wasn't always the director of gifted programs. I too was a first year teacher. I too was a first year administrator. I too was just a student that didn't know what the heck was going on in my school. Change is one person with one idea positively affecting another. Anthony Vargas, thank you so much for all of these super profound moments. We're so grateful to have a chance to chat with you. Best of luck as you start off a new school year and a new role. Thank you so much. Thank you for taking the time to tell us a little bit about what you do and how we can learn from your work. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. What a great and inspiring chat with Anthony Vargas today. I want to share a few of our super important takeaways that I think that any educator or change maker can apply in their everyday work. First of all, it's time to shift gifted and talented from talent identification to talent development. One of the biggest issues today revolves around the identification of gifted students. Historically, schools have leaned on intellectual assessments that demonstrate innate ability. And while that approach is well-intentioned, it neglects many students who might not fit that traditional mold, but are still in their own unique ways gifted and talented. What we're seeing very clearly in the research is a huge underrepresentation of minority students with disabilities and multilingual learners in gifted and talented programs. The reality is that they have gifts too, and we need to grow them. That's the job of educators, to challenge those old schools of thought to be more inclusive in a changing world. By shifting our focus from identifying gifted students to developing gifted students, we're able to provide the necessary support for both our teachers and students and to take the steps needed in working towards a more equitable classroom environment. Number two, change is all about relationships and change is everyone's job. Making change is hard work. And while data 
is a part of how we find the story that needs to be told. The actual work of change making is really all about relationships. From parent to student to teacher to administrator, we all play a valuable role in challenging the educational system and changing it for the better. It's important to remember that we are not just talking about external relationships either, but also our relationships with ourselves. Real change starts with looking in the mirror, increasing our self-awareness and recognizing our own biases and then finding the place where we can enter the conversation by taking ownership of the problem and finding ways directly tied to ourselves to take action. Once you've identified how you can own that problem, you can begin seeking out your network of people and also the people that believe in your priority, that same thing that you're looking to improve and change. Remember, a lot of these people, these champions, they're already at your school. In the end, as Anthony said, change is one person with an idea positively impacting another. Number three, Anthony's magic triangle of success. Clearly, Anthony is a masterful change agent. He shared that he takes a three-pronged approach when embarking on a change management journey, which consists of policy, accountability, and support. First, policy creates requirements and expectations that set the bar. Then accountability ensures that policy moves from words on a page to true action and stakeholder buy-in. And finally, putting into place supports ensures that all stakeholders are willing and able to create the changes in behavior that lead to meaningful impact over time. What a pleasure it was to speak with Anthony Vargas and to be inspired by the meaningful change he's been able to make within his district and now with the state of Maryland. I'm Amanda Bratton. For more conversations with bold educators exploring uncharted territory, click the link in the show notes or visit propello.com backslash learn to learn more.